you are with us regularly, you know that we have been the last several weeks, several months, been going through the book of Genesis. And last Sunday we came to Genesis chapter 22, the story of the sacrifice or near sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's beloved and only son. And in our study last Sunday, we focused upon what I think is the, uh, the main theme of that text, which is the Lord's provision. We looked at how the Lord provided a ram to take Isaac's place upon the altar. And we saw how this was a, a sign of the provision that God was going to make for all of his people, that he was going to provide the substitute in Christ Jesus, the substitute through whom those who deserve death might receive life. Those who deserved condemnation might receive justification. Those who deserved God's curse might instead receive his blessing through a substitute, through a, a substitute lamb, one to die in our place. The Lord's great provision for his people. This morning, I want us to think about that story again, but from a different perspective. This morning, I want us to focus not so much on the Lord's provision, but upon Abraham's faith and upon the obedience that that faith elicits, the the way that his faith is expressed in works. This is what James does in uh, the second chapter of his epistle. He, He focuses upon Abraham and says that Abraham was justified by his works. By the works that his faith produced. And this is the text that we will be looking at this morning as we we take a small break from our study of Genesis uh, to look at James' treatment of Genesis chapter 22. So turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. We will be reading verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith 
apart from works is dead. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask God for his grace to hear his truth in this portion of his word. Pray with me. Father God, we know it is by your word that we have life. Your word is that imperishable seed through which we have been born again. And we thank you for the life that we have by it. And we now ask for your grace to feed upon it, to understand it, to receive it, to submit to it, to allow it to shape our lives, Father. That we might be equipped for every good work that you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been in church very long at all, then you have probably encountered it at one time or another, in one form or another, the supposed conflict, or some might even say the outright contradiction between James and Paul regarding works and our justification. You probably know that in Romans and then again in Galatians, Paul argues at length That we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And yet here in James chapter 2, James says as clearly as he can, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. At first glance, it It seems to be about as clear a contradiction as you could possibly have. Paul says P. James says not P. That's the very definition of of a contradiction that you learn in your logic classes. You know, it can't be both. The law of contradiction says it, it can't be both P and not P. What is going on here? Is the scripture in conflict with itself? How are we to make sense of this? I think before we look at what James actually says here in James chapter 2, the first thing that I must do this morning is show you that this contradiction, this, this supposed contradiction, is in fact only an apparent contradiction. Really, it's no contradiction at all. And I think I can do this if we just take the time to look at what both apostles are actually saying. If we see what Paul means when he says that a person is justified by faith alone, and then if we see what James means when he says that a person is justified by works and not faith alone, once we see what both men mean, I think the uh, contradiction, the apparent contradiction will disappear rather quickly. So let's begin by looking at what Paul means when he says that we are justified by faith alone. Let's begin just by actually turning to the text. The first most prominent text is is Romans 3, 8, 28. So turn there with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says as clearly as he can, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And to understand exactly what he means, we need to back up a little. Let's back up to verse 20. Here, Paul begins. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. And then comes the verse, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul makes much the same argument in Galatians uh, chapters three and, and four and five, where, where he argues that, listen, we are not we are Jews. And yet we know that a person is justified not by works, but by that's why he says in, in Galatians 3, chapter 10, that the one who relies on works of the law is under a curse, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because no one can abide by all things written in the book of the law. That's why he goes on in Galatians chapter 5 to say, listen, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Do not again put yourself under the law, because if you try to be justified by the law, then you are rejecting grace. And if you reject grace, then your only hope is to fulfill the law perfectly. The one who seeks to be justified by the law must fulfill all the law. And so when we begin to piece all of these texts together, we begin to get a picture of what it is that Paul means when he says that we are justified by faith alone. Here in, in Romans 3, it begins with the proposition that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, listen, there is no distinction, Jew and Gentile alike. We are all sinners. We are all sinners before God. And because we are sinners before God by both birth and by choice, we are justly deserving of condemnation. We have earned God's wrath rather than his blessing. And to be justified, Paul tells us, is to be forgiven of those sins and to be reconciled to God. That's what it means when he speaks about justification. It means that, that you are forgiven, that your, your sins are covered, that they were not to be counted against you, but that you are rather declared to be right with God. That's justification. You are declared to be right with God, that you are reconciled and that you are at peace with him, that he no longer holds anything against you. As Paul says in Romans 8, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is justification. But where does this justification come from? How can this justification be accomplished by by sinners who are justly deserving only of condemnation? But Paul says it can't be through the law. No one can be justified through the law. Romans 3, 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because there's something lacking about the law? Because, because the law is somehow insufficient? No. No, not at all. There's nothing wrong with the law. Paul himself says the law is holy and righteous and good. And if you could keep it, you could live by it. The law did not lie when it says, Do this and live. The problem is we can't do it. The problem, the, uh, the, the problem with justification through the law is that we cannot keep the law. God doesn't grade on a curve. If we are going to stand before God on the basis of a righteousness that we have accomplished in our own strength, the only righteousness that he will receive is a righteousness as perfect as the righteousness of Christ. It is only through his Perfect right. It's only through perfect righteousness that we can stand before him. 
And so, by the law, we cannot possibly be justified. Therefore, our only hope is that we would be justified by the righteousness of another, that we would be justified through the redemption that was purchased by Christ's blood. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 3. Christ has been put forward as the sacrifice for our sins. Christ has has died as our substitute. He is the one who has taken the death that was owed to us upon himself. And the question that remains is, how do we receive that gift? How do we become beneficiaries of what Christ has done? And Paul says it must be and can only be by faith alone. You can only receive it as a gift when you acknowledge that you cannot earn it. When we try to earn it in any way, when we try to, to, to pay our part, when we try to, to do enough to at least make ourselves worthy, Paul says you are negating grace. You are denying grace. And if you're going to deny grace a little, you have no choice but to deny it totally and to stand before God upon your own two feet. And to stand before God upon your own two feet is to receive only his condemnation. For there is no distinction. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. This is what Isaiah means when he says that our our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. That doesn't mean that God is never pleased with our good works. That doesn't mean that our good works are never actually good. What it means in context is when we offer our good works to God as payment for his blessing, he rejects them as if they were filthy rags. He is pleased with the good works of his children. We'll see that before we're done today. But when we try to buy him off with our good works, he judges them for what they are, not according to his grace, not according to his mercy. And he says they fall short. But if you will simply believe, if you will simply rest upon Jesus Christ, if you will acknowledge that he is your only hope, that his salvation is is your only hope, then you can receive all of the benefits of his death. That is what Paul means when he says that we are justified by faith alone. It is through faith alone that we are pronounced to be right with God, that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, that we are reconciled to our Heavenly Father. It comes down to what you've heard me say so many times, that the gospel is that we are right with God, not because of what we have done for him, but because of what he has done for us. That is justification by faith alone. What then does James mean when he comes along and says, but we are not justified by faith alone, but whether we are justified by Works. Well, turn back with me to James and let's look at the text again. Let's look at what he's actually talking about here in context. Notice how he begins, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? That's the question that James is dealing with here. Can such faith save him? What's the such faith that he's talking about? It's faith that doesn't produce works. James is saying, listen, faith that doesn't produce works isn't genuine faith. It's not saving faith. It's not a living faith. If if you see your brother poorly clothed and say, go in peace, but do nothing to meet his needs. What good is your faith? James says it's no better than a corpse. He says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
And just so that we don't miss it, he comes back to the same point again in verse 26. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what is James point? What is it that James is getting at when he says that we are justified by works and not by faith alone? When you read the the entire section, it it seems clear what James means. James means to say that the faith that receives God's free gift of justification, the the, the faith that receives the, the redemption purchased by Christ's blood, that that faith is a faith that works. He's not in any way suggesting that we somehow have to earn God's forgiveness. He's not saying that you have to you have to earn or or buy off God. I mean, look at he actually quotes the same text that Paul uses right here in the middle of his discussion. He says, and such the text was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James is not meaning to teach that we are somehow justified by a combination of works and faith, that that somehow the two work together to, to make us completely righteous, that faith does part of the job and our works do part of the job. That's not at all what James is meaning. James is here explaining how what it means to say that Abraham was justified by faith. And so what he means is, listen, the faith that justifies, the faith that receives God's gift of righteousness is a faith that works. It is a faith that expresses itself in deeds. Some theologians have said it this way, that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The faith that justifies never remains a faith without works. And so we see James' point. James is saying, listen, the faith that receives is going to work. Paul is saying that it is faith alone that receives. And so you see then that there is no real contradiction. There is, there is no conflict between what James is saying and what, what Paul is saying. They're, just, they're focusing on different parts of the church community. You know, Paul is addressing those who believe that they could somehow earn God's favor. This is what he talks about in Romans chapter 10. He says, listen, the the Jews who I'm writing to, you know, they were zealous for God, but they were zealous apart from knowledge. And therefore, they denied the power of the gospel. They thought they could earn it. They thought they could establish their own righteousness. And they need to hear that, listen, you can't. You cannot earn God's blessing. You have to receive it as a gift. And receiving it as a gift begins with the acknowledgement that you can't earn it. That you cannot establish your own righteousness. James, on the other hand, is is writing to those who who believe that, well, it's free gift of God. Therefore, I'm off the hook. What do I have to do? I can I can just sort of easy believe and I can just sort of believe and then I'm, I'm good for life. And James is saying, listen, that's not true faith. That's not what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to really believe in him, to really confess that he is your Lord necessarily produces itself in good works. And both Paul and James point to Abraham, the father of the faith, to make their point. Paul points to, to Abraham in, in, ex, in Genesis 15 and says, look at James. Uh, sorry, um, Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But James points to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22 and says, look at Abraham, the faith that he had expressed itself in obedience. 
If Abraham had never left his hometown, if, if Abraham had, had, had never had refused to offer up his son, if he had refused to obey, then, then his faith would have been proven to be a sham. But because he obeyed, because he responded to God's word with obedience, because his life produced good works, we see that his faith was living faith. We see that his faith was saving faith. And so we receive the gift of justification by faith alone. But the faith that receives the gift never remains alone. It is a faith that always expresses itself. And James isn't the only one who says this. Paul himself says very much the same thing. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. This is one of those texts where Paul is you know, arguing vehemently that we are justified by faith alone. This is one of the principal texts. And he begins Genesis or Galatians 5 with the words, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not, do not submit to the law as if by the law you're going to earn your salvation. Don't do it, he says. But notice how he concludes in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. Period, right? No. But only faith what? But only faith. Working through love. Jane, or Paul himself, in the, in the very context where he is most forcefully arguing for justification by faith alone, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. There's no contradiction here. Paul and James say the same thing. They both say that our faith, the faith that receives God's gift, is a faith that will show itself, that will express itself in good works. Of course, this brings us to our next question. What are the works? What are the works that faith does? Well, we've already seen the answer. We see it right there in Galatians chapter 5. The works that faith does can be summed up in the language of love. What is the work that faith does? The work that faith does is Love. It expresses itself in love. And this should be no surprise to us, for, for Jesus himself said that the whole law, the very definition of good works, is summed up in the two commands, love God and love neighbor. And so it is no surprise that our faith is going to express itself in love for God and love for neighbor. And turn back to me. I'm sorry to have you flip around so much, but turn back to me to James. It's exactly what we see here. In James chapter 2, what is the response, what is the good work that James has in mind when he says that faith without works is dead? Well, he tells us there in verse 15. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things for the body, what good is that? What are the good works? What is the expression of love that, that Paul has or that James has in mind here? It is the same that Paul has in mind in Galatians 5. It is, it is tangible deeds of love, tangibly uh, working for the good of your neighbor, not just simply expressing a concern for the good of your neighbor, not just sort of hoping that things go well for your neighbor, but actually making the good of your neighbor a priority in such a way that you actually work to bring about its accomplishment. This is the love that our faith will necessarily express itself in, James. And so, 
we have to understand what it is that um, that both Paul and James are saying. They are saying, as we've seen, both are saying that we are justified by faith alone. Both are saying that the faith that justifies will express itself in good works. And both are saying that the good works that they will that will come forth, that will be brought forth are works of tangible love for our neighbor. Now, we'll notice that here in James, uh, James um, emphasis, James emphasis is upon our brothers and our sisters in Christ. James says, listen, if your brother or sister is poorly clothed. Now, throughout the New Testament, that is language that is used almost exclusively, if not absolutely exclusively, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for fellow believers. And and this is not the only text throughout the entire New Testament. The priority is always given uh, to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ and to responding to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus himself said that they will know that you are my disciples, not by the way you love them, but by the way you love one another. The picture of the church that we see in Acts is a is a picture of a church that is caring and responding to every need among the congregation. There was no need among them, we are told in Acts. And Paul's statement in Galatians chapter six is clear where he says, listen, do good to all, especially the household of faith. And so we recognize, we understand that we have a, a first priority to, to meet the needs of those in our church family. We have a first priority to, to meet the needs of our own congregation. And I have said it to you before, and I'll, I'll say it again, that it ought to be our goal to embody that description of the church that we see in Acts. That there ought to be no need that goes unmet in our congregation. So long as we have resources, we ought to be sharing those resources so that every need is met. When, there is, uh, when, when someone has a need of any kind, whether it's an emotional need or a relational need, we ought to be using the resources that God has given to us to benefit one another. But we must not stop there. That is our first priority as far as Scripture is concerned. Absolutely, that is clear. We do not deny that. But notice what Paul says, actually says in Galatians chapter 6. He says, do good to all, especially the household of faith. He doesn't say only the household of faith, but, but especially the household of faith. But do good to all as you have opportunity. And so we have a responsibility to do to do good, to do tangible acts of love, not just to our family of faith, but to all the people in our community. But how? Just just saying the word seems overwhelming, doesn't it? Just saying we have a responsibility to do good to all. You're just like, whoa, where do I even begin? You know, some of us, we 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 just hear that language and we give up even before we start. Because it, it just seems so big. It, it seems so overwhelming. It seems so impossible. If we say we just have a responsibility to this congregation, well, we can handle that. You know, I can maybe big that may, that may be time consuming, but at least it's limited. At least we can at least we can get our mind around how it might possibly be accomplished. But when you start saying you have a responsibility to do good to all people are like, I, I can't do that. That's too much. I'm just going to check out now. Thank you very much. But we, so we need to understand exactly what Paul means when he says, do good to all. First, we have to understand that Paul is not saying it is your responsibility to end poverty and injustice in this world. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that it is your responsibility to, to live in such a way that poverty is, ceases to exist. 
In fact, I would contend that that scripture itself teaches that so long as we live in this fallen world until God brings to completion the good work that he has begun, poverty will not be eradicated. He said it would be eradicated if everybody would just obey me perfectly. But you're not going to. And so until I come, until God comes and just establishes his kingdom on earth, poverty will not be eradicated. It is not your job to end poverty. It's not your job to end injustice. That's not what we are calling you to. Nor are we saying that every need that you know about is your immediate responsibility. In our world, we have information overload. We know about needs on every continent. We know about needs close to home. We know about needs far away. We know about way more than we could possibly respond to. So we have to look at what Paul actually says. What he says is, as you have opportunity. As you have opportunity, do good to all. Now, what defines an opportunity? That's going to be different for all of us. You know, we have people in this congregation who have opportunities to do good to um, orphans in Belarus. You may not have that opportunity. We have people in this congregation who have opportunity to to do good in Japan. That may not be your opportunity. We have people in this conversation who, who don't have any little children at home. And therefore, they have different opportunities than those who do. We have people in this congregation who have lots of material resources, and therefore they have different opportunities than those who are just scraping to make ends meet themselves. We have people with different opportunities. I'm not telling you what your opportunity is. We have people with different giftedness. We have, you know, there's a ministry here who's, who's looking for, um, you know, people to come and to, to teach Bible studies at, at a prison. And, and, you know, that is maybe my gifting, but maybe it's not yours. But we have other ministries here where, where people are looking to, to give people financial advice and how to budget. And, you know, maybe that's your gifting and it's not mine. You know, I don't even do the budget of my own house. That's my wife's job because, you know, if, if I was in charge of that, we would, we'd be in trouble. You know? Uh, you know, our credit rating wouldn't be what it is because I'd forget to pay the mortgage or something. You know, that, that, that's just the way it is. We, we have different giftings. We, we have different opportunities. But the reality is that we have all been called to do tangible good to the people in our community, to the people in our moral proximity. You, you may have a moral proximity. You may have a closeness, a connection with someone in another country. Or you may have a connection with someone right here in this town. But the reality is, is that we all have opportunities. It's just that we don't always know what those opportunities are. Sometimes we're blind to them. I, my, my brother uh, is, a, is a pastor down in uh, Chattanooga, and I was once talking to him uh, about uh, mercy ministry at the church and, and maybe bemoaning a little bit of the fact that, that we just didn't have that many opportunities. He said, you must be blind. You know, if you don't think you have opportunities, you're just not paying attention. He said, I guarantee you there are opportunities in your community. There are opportunities surrounding your church. There are opportunities right at your doorstep. And that is what this ministry fair is all about. This ministry fair is about opening our eyes to the opportunities that we have. We're not saying that every ministry out there is your calling. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that God has called us to do good to all as we have opportunity. And there are opportunities all around. So open your eyes. Find out what they are. Find out what your giftedness is. Find out what your resources are. And figure out what you can do to respond to the needs of those who God has placed in your path. But the reality is, it's not 
enough to stop there. It's not enough just to say, okay, you have a responsibility and now you have opportunity, so go and do it. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, makes the point that the reason that most of us do not get involved is not because we lack knowledge or not because we lack moral imperative, but because we lack motivation. What is it that motivates us to actually respond to the opportunities that we have? Well, we see it here in James, do we not? It is our faith. It is our belief in God. But how exactly does that work? Well, that's a complex question and could take a, uh, we could take a long time answering it. But this morning, I just want to point out one aspect of our faith that moves us to do works of tangible love. All right. Motivation, of course, is not a, a simple matter. Motivation is, is a multifaceted thing. But there is one thing that our faith grasps. There is one thing that our faith sees that I think will inevitably move us to action. And it is something that we don't talk about nearly enough. It is simply the beauty of our God. The beauty of the God who has called us. God's beauty, God's goodness, God's excellence is what we see. It's what we we apprehend when we when God opens our eyes through faith and seeing his beauty moves us to participate in it. You see, I believe that we all, by God's design, by God's creation, we have a desire, we have a, an innate desire to be good, to, to be excellent. Uh, we, we, we want it. We crave it. This is, in my life, I've seen it in so many ways. I had a friend who, who came to seminary while I was there, and, and he got me into to playing chess. And, you know, I quickly realized I wasn't very good at it. And so my personality being what it is, what did I do? I went to the bookstore, and I started buying books, and I started reading books, and I started studying, because, because I wanted to be good at the thing that I did. I never want to be just, just mediocre. I want to be excellent. Now, you may not have obsessions with hobbies the way that I do. You, you, you may not you know, study chess or racquetball the way that I do. But the desire to be excellent shows up in your life somehow. There's a, there's a commercial that's running right now that says, you know, no one wants to, to tell an average joke. You know, no one wants to be almost remembered. You know, even, even the marketing world understands there is in us a desire to be excellent, a desire to be good, a desire to be notable in some way. The problem is that our, our understanding of excellence, our understanding of what's good, our understanding of what's notable has been perverted by sin. It, it's been twisted. It's, it's been turned in on itself so that, so that we pursue all kinds of, of false gods, so that we, we pursue all kinds of false ways to, to make a name for ourselves. You know, we we want to be known more for our physical beauty than for our character. We, we want to be known more for our academic achievement than for anything else. We, we, we have these false senses of what it is that makes us excellent. But faith, when God opens our eyes in faith, he gives us eyes to see what is truly excellent. He gives us eyes to see the beauty of his self-giving love. And we see that the one who is the maker of heaven and earth, displays His glory by giving Himself for those who are unworthy, for those who don't deserve it. And it moves us to say, that's true excellence. That's true beauty. That's what I want to participate in. 
That's why John can say in 1 John chapter 3 that it is when we see him as he is that we are moved to purify ourselves. That's why Paul can say in Corinthians that it is as we behold his glory that we ourselves are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Because when we see God's beauty, when we see true excellence, when we see true goodness, we are moved to participate in it. And God's beauty, God's glory shows itself most clearly in the way that he gives himself away for others. So you want to be excellent? You want to be good? You want to be notable? Be like God. Be holy as he is holy. Be perfect as he is perfect. Participate in his character. But the same mind that was in Christ Jesus as he became nothing, humbling himself and, and becoming obedient even to death on a cross, let that same mind be in you. Not so that you can earn his favor. You already have it. It's been purchased for you by Christ. But so that you can participate fully in all the joy and the benefits of eternal life. All the joy and the benefits of that which has been purchased for you. You see, when God calls us to do good at every opportunity, it is not a burden to be born. It is a joy to be experienced. Because God knows that He is inviting you to be like Him. And that there is no greater joy in this universe than that you participate in His character. Truly, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. God calls us to be like Him. And He empowers us to be like Him. He empowers us to participate in all His beauty. And because He does, that is one reason we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we thank You for the call to do good. Father, forgive us for recoiling from it. Forgive us for um, resisting it. Forgive us for uh, bemoaning it. And Father, set us free to receive it as the gift that it is. Set us free to, to hear it as the call to be like you. To participate in your glory. To participate in your beauty. To be holy, even as you are holy. Father God, set us free from the idolatry of our hearts. Open our eyes in faith. That we might walk in the footsteps of faith. Even as did our father Abraham. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.